0: Please open your Bibles to the book of Titus, Paul's letter to Titus. Children are dismissed for children's church. Indeed, worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive honor and glory and dominion and rule. Worthy is the Lamb. After taking a break last week from our study of Titus to do a sort of standalone message on baptism, and then getting to see seven of our own receive baptism and obedience, we now return to Titus chapter 2. We're in the middle of it right now. And to sort of recap where we are in Titus, especially if you haven't been here um, for part of this series, it's an occasional letter, meaning it's... it's sent by Paul to Titus for a specific circumstance for a specific time. Namely, that Paul and his missionary church planting team had come through Crete and Paul had left Titus behind. He's writing to him, possibly from Macedonia or Decapolis. The instructions are to tell Titus what he is to do and in a sense to authorize him to do what he is to do. At the end of chapter 3, the final verse, the greeting is, Grace be to you all. And so it is evident that even though Paul is writing to Titus, he understood, he expected that others would be reading this. And in reading it, they would see that Titus was authorized by the apostle to do the very things he was to do. And Titus's task at Crete was to help this fledgling, forming church, sort of as a midwife, grow into maturity. In chapter 1, verse 5, Paul makes it very clear, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order, literally to, to put into order what is lacking. And so as these fledgling new churches. We're not fully mature. We're not fully formed. And we saw really the rest of chapter one is devoted to the first and primary task of Titus, which is to identify, raise up, train, and appoint elders the local church was in desperate need of qualified godly leadership. There's a danger of false teachers. There's the danger of the corrupt Cretan culture. And so the very first thing that Titus is to do to shore up what is lacking is to appoint elders. And then in chapter 2, which is our text, our section, we see the second thing that Titus was to do was to teach. And chapter 2 is a teaching sandwich, if you will. Paul says it at the beginning, he says it at the end. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Verse 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And then chapter 3 begins a new topic. So sandwiched in between these commands of teaching, sound doctrine are sort of household codes, and we've gone week by week as Paul instructs Titus to teach sound doctrine to the older men, to the older women, to the younger women, to the younger men, and this week to slaves. He's going case by case, and the title for all this chapter 2 series is Sound Doctrine and Sound Living, and the reason for that and why every message so far has been Sound Doctrine and Sound Living and then the title is because of that connection. This all flows out of that. If you look at the arrangement after we finish this Sunday's sermon, next week our text will be the gospel doctrinal foundation, which is to fuel all of what he's previously said. That if the older men firmly grasp verses 11 through 14, it will fuel their sobriety, their seriousness, their discipline. If the older women will grasp What is said in verses 11 through 14, it'll fuel their godly character, and they can then train the younger women who, as they grasp the gospel, they grasp the teaching at the end of this chapter, will fuel their lives, and the younger men likewise, and now on to slaves. And it's important to make that connection, because without verses 11 through 14, this is just moralism. This is just, do this, don't do that. Be good little boys and girls. But note... Paul understands that good deeds flow from good doctrine, sound doctrine, sound living, healthy doctrine, healthy lives. And so there's a doctrinal foundation which is necessary if the churches at Crete are going to produce the mature and godly men that they desperately need, the mature and godly women they need, the mature and godly younger women and wives that they need, the younger men, and now finally the slaves. Now, to talk about slavery is difficult because most of what we know of as slavery, and that's pretty much what the word means here, although translations wrestle with this. um, My translation, the ESV of 2007 says slaves, but the 2011 update went back to bond servants. Um, And so I'm guessing the translations here have some variety. But The basic meaning of the word is a slave. The reason why translators wrestle with that. It's because slavery in the first century was a good deal deal different than the slavery of America, the the chattel slavery that we had based solely on race. Um, And there's a broad spectrum in the first century. There were slaves who were respected. You could be a doctor. You could be a teacher. You could have quite a nice living. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there was slavery that was oppressive, brutal, tyrannical, awful. And in Rome, there was the full gamut. And so First Peter will talk about slaves whose masters are harsh and brutal and beat them for no reason, and yet there are also slaves who really are sort of like middle-class people. There's a broad spectrum, and so translators wrestling with what to put in here. And I think it's important to note a couple things first, that, that in a society where being a slave was the lowest thing you could be, God singles them out for instruction and encouragement. The first four categories we saw were separated by gender and by age. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. But slaves could be all four of those things. There could be slaves who were older men, slaves who were older women, slaves who were younger women, younger men. And God cares for them. And in the culture where they would be less than nothing in some cases, Um, They get singled out for instruction and encouragement and and Paul regularly does this in Colossians, Ephesians. Peter speaks to slaves. They were a part of the church. They were a vital part of the church. And so as we go through Paul's instruction to Titus on how he should train up and encourage slaves, our application is going to be pretty much for anyone in employment, anyone working, anyone under anyone's authority. It's going to be the argument from the greater to the lesser. If, If Paul wants slaves who have no rights and are completely under the rule of someone else, if he wants them to do these things, how much more should we, in the spheres where we are under authority, in the spheres where we are directed to work for another, how much more should we do the same? So that'll be our application. Our takeaway as we go through this is cultivating an evangelistic work ethic. Cultivating an evangelistic work ethic. Now Paul, we've already seen in First Timothy five, has already spoken to slaves, and I'll just start off by reading his encouragement to them here, and then we'll read Titus. First Timothy six, sorry one. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit from their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. And we've already gone through that in our study of First Timothy. So now, Titus 2, 9 through 10. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. But showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, there it is short, simple, and yet I think profoundly difficult. It goes against our nature as so we're look at it. And, and one or two comments to make before diving in. A lot of Christians struggle with the Bible's teaching on slavery, um, but the Bible doesn't have much of a teaching on slavery. The Bible, really, in the New Testament, neither commends as good nor condemns slavery. It simply accepts it as a social institution that is. Now, Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you can be free from slavery, become free. That's that's a good thing. But contrary to what many are doing with Christianity today, trying to primarily make it an institution of social transformation, Paul had many opportunities where he could condemn slavery. He doesn't. He doesn't speak well of it. It just is. It's just a, a thing that is in the society Christians in the church, some of them are going to be slaves. And so here's his instruction for them. And so we should neither see this as something saying that slavery is good or even inherently saying it's bad. It simply is speaking to the situation in the church, that is, that there are slaves. Now, Christian principles applied in the culture and the society eventually lead to the eradication of slavery in the world, um, first in America and then in Britain. But... Paul, even though he had the opportunity to take that cultural institution, which is evil, especially as it was practiced in America, doesn't. He's focused on the gospel. He doesn't take his eyes off of the prize. And so we're going to get our marching orders and our understanding of submission from this. So cultivating an evangelistic work ethic. Three points. First, we're going to see a servant's mandate. Be submissive. Servants mandate, be submissive. And really, this is the sum total of the instruction for slaves, for servants, for workers. Everything else that follows is explaining, restating what it means to be submissive. This is the fundamental command. And it's it's kind of ironic because slaves are ones who are already placed under someone else's authority. Slaves are some who are already made to be obedient. But here... Paul's going after the will. Paul is going after the mind. And so point A, what what this means is a willingly placing yourself under another's authority. That's what submission is. The basic notion of the word submission is to willingly order and place yourself under another's authority. It's what it means in every context it's used. It's, It's what submission means for children to parents. It's what it means to be submissive to the state. It's what it means for wives to be submissive to husbands. It's what it means for the church to be submissive to the leadership. It's what it means for us to be submissive to Christ. To place yourself willingly under the authority of another. That's the basic meaning of the word. It's what it means here. (laughs) Notice that Paul does not tell them to obey. Even though obedience is certainly tied up in the concept of submission. Submission is more than obedience. It's about the heart. It's about the mind. One can obey and be unsubmissive. Anyone who's had children knows this, right? You can get obedience. It's, it's like the, uh, the story of a mother ordering her disobedient son to sit in a corner, and after a couple of minutes of sitting, he told her, I'm sitting down on the outside, but inside, I'm standing up. <laughs> right? That's the difference between simple obedience and submission. Submission's a much higher standard than purely obey. You could simply say, okay, slaves obey. And there could be all sorts of room for saying, okay, I obey, but I hate it. I obey, and I despise this. I obey, and I want nothing to do with this. And rather, he's telling them, those who are already externally placed under the authority of another, he's telling them, inwardly buy into that, inwardly accept that. And sort of bringing that over across to us as workers, as employees, Um, To the degree that you work for someone, you place yourself under their authority. To the degree that you have a job, your your employer has authority over you. And he has the right to, to tell you what to do within certain spheres. And some of us can resent that. Some of us can become angry at that. And if slaves are not to do so, how much less should we to the degree that we're under authority, legitimately, we should embrace that authority. We should lean into that authority. We should not push against it. This also doesn't mean that the slaves are somehow inherently inferior. I think, I think that's part of the reason why we wrestle so much with this notion of authority and submission because we've bought into this cultural notion that to be submissive, to order yourself under someone, must mean that you're inferior to them. The problem is that doesn't hold up. We'll start with the fact that the son submits to the father. And I would not want to say that Jesus is inferior to the Father. Children are not less people have, having less worth than parents to whom they are to submit. Wives are not inferior to husbands. I'm not inferior to the police or the government, and neither are you. No, our culture wants us to believe that to submit and to accept submission is to make yourself inferior, to make yourself lesser, but that's a lie. It's a convenient justification to excuse our rebellion and our unsubmissiveness. It's not true. And notice also that Paul doesn't say just to good masters, not just to Christian masters. This is to any master. Um, There are going to be some servants, some slaves, some workers, whose masters, whose bosses are jerks, are incompetent, are lazy, are brutal, cruel. It doesn't make any difference. The command is to submit, to order yourself under that person. And as we'll see as we get to the end, because of who God is, not because of who they are. The other thing I'd like to look at is just the sphere. Okay, submit. Okay, in what areas? Well, for a slave, in all things. In all things. You think of that, every area of life. And I think the difference bringing that across for us would be, you know, various employers have various spheres of authority. If you're, a, if you're in the military, um, when you're on active duty, your, your employer, your boss, has a much greater sphere of authority than probably most of us working. But different employers have varying spheres of authority. And, and basically what that would mean for us is this, that whatever is a legitimate sphere of your employer's, your boss's authority, give them all of that. Submit in every area of that. This is what submission means. It means to place yourself under another's authority and in every area, not picking and choosing what areas. In whatever area, they have a rightful claim. And this is difficult. We're hardwired not to like to submit. No one likes to submit. No one had to teach my children not to like this. I don't think there are any children that just growing up naturally just go, Mother, it would just be a wonderful thing if you gave me something to do right now. I just would love for you to give me instructions that I could carry it out. Has anyone had a child who said that? No. No, it doesn't come naturally to us. The fall is all about us coming out from under authority. The fall, if you think about it. Will Adam and Eve order themselves under God? God has given instruction about what to make of this tree, what it means, what will happen. And Adam and Eve, rather than depending on God's authority and placing themselves underneath him, trustingly come out from under it. They want to be equal, so they want to come up alongside of him. And the fall happens. They assert their autonomy, their independence, And death, disease, and pain and suffering enter into the world as a result. So that's a servant's mandate. Be submissive. Okay, how? What does that look like specifically? How does one do this? Next, we'll see a servant's method. And that is aim to please. Aim to please. Slaves, Paul writes, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing. Aim to please. And again, this shows us how much higher the bar is than pure, simple obedience. Because again, Paul is after the motive. Paul is after the heart and the mind of Christians. It's not simply enough to render external obedience, but inwardly, you've got to buy into ordering yourself under another. And here, you've got to make it your goal to please them, to render satisfaction to them. And this isn't something just isolatedly stated here. Let me read to you what Colossians three twenty-two to 25 says, unpacking this even further. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There there is no partiality. He tells them, serve your masters. And don't just do it sucking up to them, trying to flatter them. Do it sincerely from the heart as unto the Lord. In Ephesians 6, 5 through 8, Paul writes, Slaves, obey earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Just, Just stop and plug that in. Transfer that across the bounds to our context. Obey your earthly boss as you would Christ. That's, that's what he's saying. If you can say that to slaves, how much more could he say that to us? Well, you don't understand. My, my, my boss is a jerk. No, God understands that. Read, we'll read first Peter here in a few minutes. Peter's well aware of that. My, my boss is incompetent. My boss is a fool. My boss is um, unkind. I, I understand. The Lord will give grace. He has compassion. But serve him as you would Christ. That's the standard. This is high. This is really high. And this is why you need that gospel foundation that we're going to see next week to do this. Because this isn't just something you can sort of muscle up and do. Everything in us screams against it. Everything in us hates this. This This is hard. Two short verses. Very hard. Ephesians 6. Obey your earthly masters as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free. See, there's a uniform teaching from Paul. I do want to add one caveat. In all the cases where we are told to submit to our authorities, there's always one assumed exception that we get clearly in Acts. When the apostles are told by the Sanhedrin to stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ, they say, "Is it better for us to obey God or man?" And so, in any situation of authority, whether it be child or or us to the government, or a slave to his or her master, or a wife to her husband, whenever that authority would call on us to sin, to disobey God's clear instruction. We, we cannot obey that. But other than that, other than those times where authority was calling on us to sin, if there are authority, and they're speaking in their sphere of authority, we obey, and we obey as unto Christ. That is the standard. That is the bar. The servant's aim is to Please. It's not simply the check off, I did what you said, but rather, I want you pleased with what I did. Christians should be the best workers. We should be the best um, best employees. Um, Bosses and owners and, and managers should just be looking for, prizing, cherishing Christian employees. As they carry out this attitude of willingly, not grumblingly, not begrudgingly, submitting, placing themselves under, aiming to please, not simply just obedience, but I want you pleased with what I've done. And then to further describe what this means, aiming to please, Paul then gives two put-offs and a put-on. If you look at that, he says in verse 9, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So what does it mean to be well-pleasing? First, it means put off arguing, quarreling, and complaining. The word literally is just a compound word against to speak, to talk back, to speak against. It's the same word, if you turn back a chapter to Titus 1.9, that is used of the types of people elders may need to encounter. In Titus 1.9, elders must hold firm, to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict, who talk back, who quarrel. This is easy enough to understand. No, no one likes being told what to do. And if, if, if the instructions of what you're told to do by your boss, by your slave master, seem unfair, seem stupid, um, then the temptation is to talk back. But, but, I, but I chopped down the field last week. It's Bob's turn. Right? It's easy enough. But it's easy to understand how this, this is something necessary to be well-pleasing. No one is well-pleased when someone under their authority talks back to them. No parent is well-pleased when their child comes up with 15 reasons why what they said shouldn't apply. I'm quickly discovering that, that my children are becoming Philadelphia attorneys. Um, and and I'm, sure it's, it's, I'm sure it's not just me in my home. That, that, I'm never well pleased by that. I never walk away and say, wow, I am so pleased that my children have come up with 15 reasons why they shouldn't do what I'm telling them to do. It's not something that makes someone well pleased. And I guarantee you that employers feel the same way. I was once counseling someone who was really struggling with this. They were in a, they were in a, a workplace where the way their employer wanted them to do their job they felt was an inferior way. They thought they had a better way of doing it. And they were really wrestling with this. And in fact, what they were really doing was they were not submitting. They were doing it their way and then receiving grief for it. And I was talking to them and they said, my, my boss is so mean to me because he's, he's always on my case because I'm not doing things the way he wants me to do them, but my way's better. And I had to sort of lovingly say, who cares? Do it their way. They're your employer. It's their right to choose an inferior way. You can tell them, hey, I think this would be a better way. But if at the end of the day, they want you to do it a certain way, you do it a certain way. That's what it means to submit. That's what it means to please and serve and not to talk back. The other put-off is stealing or pilfering is what the ESV says. It's the notion of just sort of holding back. It's what the word basically means is to hold something back for yourself. Um, it most naturally would mean embezzlement, but it's the same word used in Acts 5.2 of what Ananias did when he sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself. There's that word, to hold back for oneself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So there'll be a temptation as you're working for another to want to hold something back for yourself. And most naturally, this is money, this is embezzlement, but it could just be holding back for yourself. I'm not going to bust my back. I'm going I'm to work at a steady, slow pace. You know, I'm going to cut some corners to hold something back for myself, maybe it's taking a longer lunch break. Maybe it's altering when you signed in. I don't know. There's all sorts of ways you can hold things back from your employer for yourself. It all amounts to stealing. And and servants, workers are not to do this. Part of again what it means to be well pleasing. It's not to steal. No one is well pleased when they are stolen from. No employer is well pleased to find out that his employees are taking extra breaks. And not doing the job heartily. Um, Positively, what this means to put on, then, is to prove yourself to be faithful and trustworthy. So he says, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So again, look at look at the bar we've got here. First, going back to point one, to order yourself under someone, to submit to them, to in your mind and in your will accept to not grumble against, to not resist this notion that they are over me in this sphere. They are my authority in this sphere, and I need to order myself under them in this sphere of relationship. Second, to aim to please. My desire is for their pleasure, for their um, benefit, for their blessing. Not for myself. I'm not looking out for myself. We've got so many slogans and so many things in our country that justify us. You got to look out for number one. You got to let not people. You got to not let people walk all over you. That's not what this says. You can imagine how easy it would be to say, "Slave, stand up for yourself. Don't let people disrespect you. Don't let them mistreat you. Make sure they value you." It's not what he says. It's just not what he says. Aim to please. Don't talk back. Don't quarrel. Don't hold back. Don't steal. Prove to be faithful and trustworthy. And this, this goes on further what it means to aim to please. I want as my goal, my, my employer, to trust me. And that means that even when no one's looking, I'm doing good work. Even when no one's looking, I'm being faithful. Even when no one's going to catch me, I'm not using that as an excuse to all of a sudden start looking out for number one. It's a high standard. It's a very high standard. And If Paul can give this instruction to slaves again, how much more should we be able to receive this to our earthly masters, to our earthly bosses? How much more should we be able to receive this? Servants' mandate to be submissive, a servant's method to aim, to please, not to quarrel, not to steal. But I want my boss to trust me. I want to show myself, demonstrate myself. I want to be seen to be what I am, which is faithful. I want to communicate that. It's not enough that inwardly I know I'm faithful. I want him to know that. I want him to trust me. All this might lead us to think, okay, then perhaps what you are saying is be a man-fearer. If your goal is to please your boss, if your goal is for him to to trust you, if your goal is for him to think highly of you, then is this all just one big instruction to become a lackey, a yes-man, a flatterer? No. And our third point here makes that clear. With what motive? A servant's motive. And here the motive is to adorn the gospel. Adorn the gospel. Verse 10. But showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And the word adorn means to dress up. Same word used in 1 Timothy 2 about how women should dress themselves in, in modest clothing. Here is to dress the gospel. It's just such a beautiful picture. We don't change the gospel. We don't alter the gospel. We can dress the gospel. We can adorn the gospel. And as I was thinking through this, it, it's, it's not that the picture that we've got this gospel and it's kind of attractive, but it needs some help. You might think that from this. That's, that's not the picture. It's not that the gospel, well, you know the gospel? It's pretty good gospel. But man, it could use some help, use a publicist and a makeup person. That's not the picture at all. Rather, it's sort of, like a bride on her wedding day. if you think of a bride on her wedding day getting dressed up, the the goal of appropriately applied um, cosmetics and jewelry and clothing is to highlight the natural beauty of the person, right? Really, when it's done right, it's all pointing to the beauty of the person. When something's dressed up properly, it's not that the clothing itself draws attention, but it draws attention to the beauty, to the dignity, to the worth of the person wearing the clothing. We have a beautiful gospel. We have a powerful gospel we have a priceless and amazing gospel and we can dress it in rags and smear it with mud and it still is what it is but our lives are, are telling a lie to it or we can dress it up and we can put it on display and put it on a pedestal and shine the lights at it just right so that every glimmer and sparkle of its glory is seen that that's the picture here of adorning the doctrine of god our savior Now, now why do I say the doctrine of God our Savior is the gospel? Well, just keep reading. It's clear. He he defines what he means. And we'll look at this next week. Verse 10, so that you may in everything adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For, there's our link. These thoughts are connected. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That is what he means by the doctrine of God, our Savior. And that's the gospel, an announcement that God came into this world to bring salvation to every type of person, That Jesus died on the cross and rose again bearing our sins so that he might redeem for himself a peculiar people he could purify. And then here's the link. And that that people that he he saves become transformed and become zealous for good works. And that's the link here. The fuel for this type of submission, the fuel for this type of supernatural self-denial, let's face it, this is a high standard. The only... Appropriate fuel is the gospel, is the transforming and empowering work of God through Jesus Christ. It's the only way you could even hope to try to do this. And that's where he goes straight to. And that's where we'll look next week. That, that gospel, those truths, verses 11 through 14, are what's supposed to fuel and inform and motivate all of the instruction above. And going back to verse 1 teach with a course of sound doctrine. And then in this case, he starts with the fruit and then moves to the root. If you teach what accords with sound doctrine, here's what the older men will be doing. Here's what the older women will be doing. Here's what the younger women will be doing. Here's what the younger men will be doing. Here's what the slaves will be doing because of, for, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So the motive here is not ultimately then, and here's point A, ultimate concern is for God and not man. While it is true that a servant should care what their employer, what their master thinks of them. While it is true they should aim to please them. While it is true that they should render satisfaction and want to be seen, to want to communicate fidelity and faithfulness, ultimately it's not because they just fear that person and they just, they're a man-pleaser and a flatterer and a lackey. Rather, it's because of the gospel and what he will think of that. I care what you think about my performance. I care what you think about my work. I care what you think about my faithfulness because I care what you think about the gospel. You're starting to see why the title of this is Cultivating an Evangelistic Work Ethic? That's that's the motivation here. What will my watching, onlooking boss think of the gospel when he sees me and he knows that I'm a Christian? You're you're gonna dress up the gospel one way or the other. The question is, are you dressing it up in rags? Are you dressing it up to to show its inherent beauty? And, And look look back in this section. Paul has in three of the instances, three of these five instances, given a motivation. For the older men, for the women, for the younger men. And in each case, he says it differently, but it's the same thing. There's, there's two real reasons why we should be doing these things, why the older men should be doing what they're supposed to do, why the older women and the younger women and the younger men and now slaves should be doing what they're doing. One, it's sound, it's right, it's healthy. Right? We get that from First 1, teach sound doctrine. But secondly, because of what others will think, because of the impact it will have on the unbelieving world, let's just take a look at this. Older women, verse 3, likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. It's really important, women, that you order yourself a certain way, that you lean into God's calling on your life because what people think of the word of God is at stake... You see that? If we don't take this seriously, people will mock and scoff at the word of God. That's the the motivation given. Next, look at the young men. Verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching. Show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that... An opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So in the first case, what will they think of God's word? In the second case, what will they think of Christians in general? And then in this case, what will they think of the doctrine of God our Savior, the gospel? You notice that common thread going through these motivations? The world is watching. The world is paying attention. Hopefully they know you're a Christian. What are they going to make of your Christ? What are they going to make of your gospel? What are they going to make of our teaching? They're going to form some opinion based on that information. The question is, will the opinion they form of the gospel highlight its power and its beauty and its worth? Or they think, oh, I just met another Christian hypocrite. Talk's a good game. But if this is what a Christian is, I don't want no part of that. That's the logic here. There's a lot at stake. This is why Paul doesn't waste time trying to attack slavery itself. He wants... Christians in every sphere of life, whether they're older men, older women, younger women, younger men, slave or free, he wants them to, to be a, an attractive advertisement for the gospel. He wants them to, to be mirrors reflecting its beauty. He wants them to be that pedestal that you can put it on, that puts it on display. That's what he cares about. His ultimate motivation is not for man, but for God. And I love that. This is the doctrine of God. It's the doctrine either about God or from God, and it's, it's, both is true regardless of what the exact point here is, God our Savior. And this sort of ties in with the command in all that we do, whether we eat or drink, to glorify God. And think about that. And all that you do, whether you eat or drink, are you going to make the gospel look attractive to others? And specifically in the workplace, specifically as you labor and work. The implication is an unsubmissive attitude, that's not going to be a good advertisement for the gospel. Aiming to please yourself and not your employer, that's, that's not going to bring beauty, shine a light on the gospel. Arguing and quarreling, that's not going to make the gospel look attractive. Stealing and cutting corners, no. What is? Aiming to please, showing yourself trustworthy and faithful, willingly accepting, being under someone else's authority. Ultimate concern is for God and not man. And then we get this, this second final repetition of in all things. And that's sort of the tie-in here, the inclusio. Servants are to submit in all things so that the gospel will be adorned in all things. And and that's the point. It's not just one area of your life that God cares about. It's not two areas of your life that God cares about. It's not just three. It's not just Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. It's all of life, all the time, 24-7, 365 days a year, 366 on leap year. God cares about what type of advertisement we are for his truth. He cares about the testimony we give to his gospel. And again, we aren't making a relatively attractive gospel very attractive, but we are highlighting the true beauty, the true power, the true wonder of the gospel. And and next week, we will see how this is only something that can be done when we grasp the gospel. But, But as we move now into a time of communion, I just want to pause, and if you turn your Bibles to... 1 Corinthians 11. That I don't know about you, but I I find that this standard is difficult. In one respect, as someone employed by the church, um, I'm I'm the slave, I'm the servant of you all. So, So I'm not off the hook here. And I certainly do not claim to all the time fulfilling this 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 sermon is just as much being preached at me as this anyone else and so, says we approach the lord's table and I'll, and I'll call the ushers up now i just want to read a warning that paul has i want to take a moment to prepare our hearts for this last week we talked about the meaning and the purpose of one of the two signs the lord gave us as a church baptism and this week we will participate in the other sign the lord's table now, this is a memorial meal, just as baptism does not save. Partaking of the bread and the cup saves not. It is a symbol, again, just as last week, of an inward reality. Taking this bread, taking this cup is an indication, is a declaration to everyone else around that day by day, week by week, year by year, I am feeding on. I am trusting in. I am coming to. I am being nourished by Jesus Christ his death, his burial. So if that is true about you, we'd invite you to join in with us in this memorial meal that you would celebrate with us the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. But there's also a warning. I just want to read that before we begin. Verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so what Paul is saying is that before we come to the table, we should take some time to examine our hearts. You know, are you trusting in Christ? Is there some sin you need to confess as something that's shown up in this morning's sermon highlighted an area that the Lord wants you to give over to him, the Lord wants you to surrender to him that he's calling you to turn from. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Are you walking by faith, believing the gospel? We're going to take a few moments, and Alex will play some music, just to take some time for reflection before we celebrate the Lord's table.